0: Hey, I'm super excited about what we got going on for the next several weeks. I'm going to be preaching through the book of Titus, through the book of Titus. Um, We've been, so that's where we'll be, Titus chapter 1. And I'm calling this series, The Gospel in Real Life. Uh, The the book of Titus is written to um, Titus (laughs) and... And he's a, he's a young protege of, of, of Paul. Uh, and it's written to the church in Crete. He's ministering to the church in Crete. Now, if somebody calls you a Cretan, I think intuition tells you that's not a compliment. Um, and so that goes back a long, long time. And so Paul's instructions here are to a Cretan church and the Cretan culture about how the gospel should change their lives. And so I'm excited about it and how to learn about the gospel in real life. Let me pray for us one more time. We'll get started here. King Jesus, we come now to worship you through the hearing of your word. Your word is powerful. You spoke and all the cosmos came into existence. You can speak into our hearts this morning. And change us into who we could never make ourselves to be. And so I pray that divine, supernatural miracles would take place in this room this morning to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from self, to help us live out the gospel in real life, to maybe for the first time save a lost soul who has yet to come to saving knowledge of you. Your word is powerful. So we say, speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. So, yeah, I've been itching to get back into what I think should be the bread and butter of the preaching ministry of the church, and that is preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, Titus really jumped out to me when I was thinking about it. It's gospel-centered, it's pra- practically oriented. Um, and, you know, again, he's speaking to the church in Crete. And so they, they had a reputation. And Paul said, well... If you're going to be gospel people, you're going to have to get a new reputation. The reputation of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be gospel people, we must be changed by it. We must be different. We must live the gospel in real life. And the book of Titus shows us how, and I'm excited to go through it. We're going to see this morning uh, God's purpose in the gospel. That's the name of this first sermon in the series as we, we introduce and open up the book of Titus. God's purpose in the gospel from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read this a few times today, but I just want us to take us to heart, this introduction to the letter of Paul to Titus, beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The Word of God. You may be seated. So we're going to look at this opening to the letter of Titus under two headings this morning. Number one, God's gospel purpose. God's gospel purpose. And number two, God's gospel preacher. God's gospel preacher. Um, But first we're going to look at God's gospel purpose. So instead of walking just straight through it, um, I'm going to take this introduction and just draw out these two major themes from uh, the different phrases here in, in Paul's introduction. So the first thing, uh, as we look at God's gospel purpose, is we want to look at the promise. We want to look at the fact that as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, he understands that he is part of something much bigger than himself. Okay, And that the gospel that he proclaims and that has reached down even to Cretans is the gospel that was promised long ages before. And that's what he says there, right, in verse 2. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So in other words, the gospel, right, is something, it wasn't something that just showed up out of the blue when when Jesus was born. Okay, the gospel was part of the eternal plan and promises of God. It was present eternal ages ago in the heart and mind of God. It was God's eternal purposes to create and redeem a world whereby uh, he would have people who would know his mercy and his redemption and his grace in order that they may give him the glory that he is due and have the joy and the privilege of living with him forever in a world free from sin. So the gospel, before it was anything else, was a plan. It was part of the purpose of God to magnify his name by saving a people for himself. And this is essential for Paul because for Paul, you know, without no promise, there is no Paul. Without no promise, there is no ministry. Without no promise, there is no Damascus Road. Paul understood that he himself came under the saving promise of God. And as such, he became a vehicle of that promise to other people. It says there in verse 2, that it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So the promised hope is the hope of eternal life. It's the hope of eternal life. Now, I think that promise goes all the way back to the very first promise in the Bible that we've talked about so often, Genesis three fifteen. And if you remember, in that verse, right after sin entered the world, right after the fall, right, God is talking to the serpent, to the devil, and he tells him, he says, "There will be enmity between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, the woman. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." It's a promise, it's a promise right there in the beginning of the Bible that one day a human being would come who would do battle with the serpent and win. And I believe that implied within those passages not just that he would conquer the devil, but that he would undo everything that the devil did, namely bring sin into the world and through sin death. And so I believe right there in Genesis 3:15 is a the primordial promise of eternal life, and that's remarkable. Because God, in the, face, in the face of sin, right? So, so God created humanity, and he gave them everything they could possibly need. He made them in his own image, and they rebelled against him. And yet, in the face of that rebellion of sin, he still gives the promise. The promise. You know, he could have just sent us all to hell and be done with it. And he, he would have done no one any wrong. But he did it. Right? He gave the promise. The promise of eternal life. It's the promise of eternal life. Right? When when God told them, Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you shall surely die. Well, what is it, what is implied? It's implied that if they had never ate the fruit, they would have never died. We were made to live forever. You know, I've talked to some you know, some unbelievers before. And, you know, and I, 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 just, think it's, I just think it's interesting. It's like, why is it, if, if there is no God, the most natural thing there is, is death. If, if the most natural thing in the world is death, why does everyone not want to die? Why? It's natural. It's literally the most natural thing there is, if there is no God. But I think, I I know, that it's because deep down in our hearts, it's inescapable because it's written by the finger of God upon our hearts. We can't escape the sinking feeling that we were made to live forever. That's why nobody wants to die. We were made to live forever. What is it? It's the promised hope that God gave that that says, no, one day I'm going to deal with sin so that you can live forever it's the promise of eternal life. The promise is unshakable, Paul says, because of the one who made the promise. Because God made the promise and God can never lie. That's what it says in verse 2. God who never lies. It's interesting, it's interesting that Paul would choose to highlight that aspect of God right here in the very beginning of the of the letter. But I think it serves I think it it works to serve two purposes. Number one, clearly, the most obvious purpose is that since God cannot lie, we know that all his promises will irrevocably come to pass. If God says it, it's done. Like, you don't, have to, you don't have to think about it, you don't have to worry about it, you don't have to wonder about it. If God says it, it's done. God cannot lie. All his promises will irrevocably come to pass. There is eternal life for those who have the hope of Jesus Christ. You, death will not have the last say in your life. The sky will split open. Christ will descend. The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive will be transformed. We shall rise to meet him in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. God cannot lie. Number one. The second thing I think by highlighting Um, God's truthfulness, is I think in some ways he may already be anticipating a contrast with the serious problem that there is in Crete. Because if you glance down in verse uh, 12 there of Titus 1, he references uh, the uh, reputation that Cretans already have. How would you like to be known as a liar, evil beast, lazy glutton? Well, (laughs) oh I almost said something bad y'all <laughs> um, you don't want to be known as that okay you don't so he's, so I think he, he may be making an nod to that he, he's, he's already kind of implicitly telling the Cretans God cannot lie so if you're going to belong to God Cretan you got to stop lying you got to be like God If they're going to follow, if they're going to come up under the promise of the God who never lies, then they too must give up their dishonest ways and become truthful like their God. Okay, so we see the promise, the promise of eternal life from the God who never lies. And then in verse 3, what does it say? It says, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And so the promise was revealed, it says at the proper time literally uh, it says it says uh, in his own time in his own time so god had appointed the time that the gospel would be manifested by the preaching of his word okay and that time of course was the time of christ the time of paul the time of the apostles god god plans from time eternal even though god himself is timeless his creation is time bound including us god acts in time to bring about his eternal purposes. And so, at the proper time, God manifested his word. So God knows all of human history. God plans out all of human history. And at the proper time in human history, God manifested the gospel through his son and through the proclamation of his word. Well, well, one thing that that means is that all of history is under the command of God. You understand that, right? All of history is under the command of God. The, when, the Romans, when the Romans came to overcome Israel and be rulers of Israel, that, that wasn't an accident. He told Daniel like 400 years before that that was going to happen. God is the God of history. God is the God of history. God is the God in control. You know, when you look around, when you watch the news and you look around the world and you look at all these things going on in the world today and you get real concerned about it, just know that God's in control. You don't like the the president of Russia? You don't like the president of the United States? You don't like the president of whatever? It doesn't matter. God's in control. Okay? God's in control. And so we follow him. He's the God of history. All of history is under his command. Jesus, so, so now remember... The gospel is what? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to save sinners by dying a a substitutionary death on their behalf to pay the penalty for their sin so that they might be forgiven of their sins and have the hope of eternal life. That was not an accident. When God the Son entered into the world, that was not an accident. When God the Son was crucified by the Romans, that was not an accident. When you suffer in your life, it's not an accident. God's in control. He's working. He's got a plan. He doesn't have to tell you that plan. But He's got one. How many of y'all just saying... Tis so, I'm not going to sing, y'all, I'm sorry. (laughs) Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Do you know, do you feel that? Isn't it sweet to trust Jesus? It's sweet to trust somebody that's in control when you're not. He revealed it at the proper time. God has a proper time for things, everything in our lives, even the specific events of our lives, to bring about his good purposes, just like he did through Jesus Christ. And then the final thing I want us to see about the promise here is that in verse 3 he refers to God as Savior. He says, through which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And then down in verse 4 when he's talking to Titus, his true child in the common faith, he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And so he refers to God as Savior. Then he refers to Jesus as Savior. So first of all, he's he's equating the two there. And then second of all, the, one of the emphasis, one of the emphases in the book of Titus is God as Savior. Well, Savior from what? Right. If you, if God is a Savior, that means there's something that we need saving from. And consistently, it's always sin. We need saving from sin. There's lots of problems in the world, but let me tell you something. Your greatest problem is your sin. There's lots of things going on in the world. Lots of things we might not like in the world. There's lots of things that might make you upset, but let me tell you something. Your greatest problem is not what's going on in there. Your greatest problem is is what's going on right in here. And unless the Holy Spirit of God has come into your heart and you've surrendered to Jesus Christ and received Him by faith, all your other problems won't matter. So even in this introductory section here, we see this unbelievable promise of God. The story of the world is the story of the Bible. It's the story of God fixing our problem that we made. The problem of our sin. And Paul sees himself as just part... Look, Paul, Paul doesn't show up until toward, toward the end of the story, just about. But he sees himself as part of this long, unfolding story of God in which God just said, Now, Paul, this is your time. God promised in eternal ages past. He brought into time-space fruition the gospel, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we come under that ancient promise by the saving grace of God through faith in the gospel. So number one, God's gospel purpose. And then number two, God's gospel preacher. God's gospel preacher. I'm going to, I'm going to read the text again. It says, Paul, a servant of God, servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Jesus Christ our Savior. So, so even in the introduction, right, Paul is doing what? He's laying a gospel foundation. He's trying to get the Cretans to see. Now, <laughs> like, look, guys, if, you're, if you belong to God, if you're part of the church of God, you're part of an unfolding eternal promise of God, which means that your life can't go on business as usual. You understand that? Something supernatural, earth-shattering is happening to you. You're being changed by God, by the Spirit of God. You're coming up under the eternal promise of God. So it's just not business as usual. So Paul is laying the foundation of the gospel promise upon which he hopes will will be built a holy, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church there on the island of Crete. And he is able to charge Titus uh, and, and Paul, and, and also in this letter, he's introducing himself as well. He's able to charge Titus with these instructions because Paul himself has received a special authority and commission from God to lay the foundation of the early church. And I think we can learn a lot from Paul's self-identification here. Okay, so let's just look at it. The first thing Paul identifies himself as is a servant of God. A servant of God. So the, the word literally means bondservant, and it's closer to it's closer to the word slave, really, than servant, okay, in terms of our English understanding. So there are all kinds of, of servitude in ancient Rome, all the way from, you know, just a, just a slave, as you might typically think of it, all the way up to like a household manager like Joseph was in the, in the court of Pharaoh, okay? There's all different kinds of servitude, okay? But the point of being a bondservant is this. If you are a bondservant, if you are a slave you have a master. And if you have a master, you're obligated to do what the master says. That's the whole point. You weren't free to do what you wanted to do. You had to do the bidding of your master. And Paul, when he's writing a letter to Titus, the first way that he chooses to identify himself is as a slave. Now, you know, people aren't that different. I mean, yeah, it was 2,000 years ago, but look, people aren't that different. Being a slave is usually not something you would brag about. Unless you're Paul. Because for Paul, the most important thing about him was that Jesus was his master. See, for Paul, he didn't care who he was. What he cared about was who his master was. And what he, if you wanted to know who the apostle Paul was, Paul says, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I'm a slave of Jesus. That's who I am. I'm a slave of Jesus. Paul did not just accept the label of slave. He embraced the label of slave. He clings to it with all that he has. He counts it an honor and a privilege to serve Jesus. And for Paul, this is for Paul. This is a no-brainer because in Paul's mind, in Paul's mind, in Paul's thinking, look, everybody's a slave. Everybody's a slave. It's not like, oh, you're free and I'm not, or I'm, I'm free and you're not. In Paul's mind, everybody's a slave because everybody serves something. What you serve is your master. And most of the time, what do we serve? We serve what we think is going to make us happy. You think money is what, gonna make you happy? Money's your master, you serve it. You think relationships are gonna make you happy? You think you're, you're a family, you think your job, you think whatever it is is gonna make you happy? That's your master. You serve it. You serve whatever you think is going to make you happy. Humans are inescapably slaves. We will always act in service to something. You will always have a master. So the question is, Is not are you going to be slave or free? The question is, who are you going to serve? You're going to serve sin? You're going to serve self? Or you going to serve Jesus Christ? Whoever does, whoever does not uh, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me deny yourself to follow Jesus. You have to choose. You can't do both. Paul is a slave of God. It isn't a point of shame. It's a badge of honor. He doesn't live to serve Paul and to make Paul happy. He lives for God. He dies for God. There's nothing else he'd rather do than be a slave of God. What about you? What are you serving? Who's your master? Is the first thing, the first thing in your life that identifies you is a slave of Jesus Christ? It's a question for us to ask. Paul identifies as a slave of Christ. Number two, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ right there, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Okay? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So just picture this with me. Okay, you're driving down the highway, and you, you pull up on Six Flags Over Eastman, uh, a.k.a. Burger King, and there's a, there's a big sign on the corner. Some of y'all just got that. There's a big sign on the corner, and uh, there, there's me with it, my, my, my portrait pic on there, and then Meg right beside me, and it says, Hillside Baptist Church, Apostle Chad Henley, First Lady Meg Henley. <laughs> That'd be nice, you know. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, apostle was definitely a position of special authority, but let me tell you something. Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. He didn't choose that. For Paul, it was not a title he bestowed upon himself, so he could put his name on a billboard. For Paul, the, the office of apostleship was just as much of a burden as it was a blessing. In fact, Christ charged Paul with apostleship whether he wanted it or not. It was a message that he was entrusted with by the command of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is how Paul describes it. Verse 16 says, if I, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So Paul says, I I can't brag about preaching the gospel because that's my job. That's That's why Jesus saved me. That's why Jesus blinded me on the road to Damascus. So that I could see him and proclaim him. By faith. For Paul, the apostleship did not mean a life of honor and repute and being healthy, wealthy, and blessed. This is what it meant. First Corinthians chapter four, verse nine. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So Paul was an apostle. He was entrusted with his preaching through the command of God. It was not an option for him. In the eternal purpose of God, all throughout human history, climaxing in the coming life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the, the climax of human history, and then Paul, of all people, is appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles by God himself to fulfill the eternal purposes of God. In that moment in human history, Paul, God, had a job for Paul to do. And being a bondservant means being faithful, regardless regardless of sacrifice, regardless of what it calls you to do. Because it was a privilege for Paul to serve the Lord who saved him. So Paul is a slave. He's an apostle. And the the last thing I want us to see is Paul's self understanding of his role as a preacher of the promise of God. It says there again in verse two and three, right? It says, "In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching, which I have, with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." So, if you think about what Paul is saying there. He is saying that the ancient promises of God are now being manifested through the, obviously the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now that Christ has ascended back into heaven, they're being manifested through the preaching of the gospel. They're being manifested through the preaching of the gospel. So I just want you to think about this. The apost- uh, uh, Jesus came to save the world. Bless God. And there are multitudes and multitudes of people by God's grace and by faith in Christ who will come under the saving promises of God and obtain the hope of eternal life. But there are multitudes and multitudes of those people who what? Who, didn't, who did not live at the same time and place as Jesus. Like you and me. So how in the world will they who did not experience Firsthand, the unfolding of the promises of God how will we then after the fact in a different time in a different place come under the saving promises of God well God has appointed that that would happen through preaching through preaching I can't see Jesus with my eyes but somebody can tell me about him so when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel and he said and he said what Jesus said, repent and believe, God sent his son into the world, a Jew born of a man, born of a woman born under the law and gave, gave his life on a cross and rose from the dead. when Paul explained that to you at that moment you have a choice to make either Paul's insane, Or he's a liar. Or he's telling me something that if true, changes everything. You have to decide. You got got to decide. Either Paul's crazy, he's a liar, or he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, that means that the moment you hear the gospel, the eternal promises of God are now coming near to you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Paul understood that his preaching... You know, you know, preaching is a negative term today. Oh, don't, don't preach at me. Well, the Bible says preaching is how people are saved. Paul understood that through his preaching, the very... What does it say? The eternal promises of God was being manifested. Made known. Brought to light. Coming... May, being made visible by the preaching of the gospel. Paul is, Paul, through his preaching, literally becomes an instrument of God Himself to bring his saving promises near to his chosen people. We know this because we know this is what Paul thinks, because he says it right there in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Why is Paul Paul an apostle? Because he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. There are people who God has chosen, who when they hear the gospel, will believe in him and be saved. So that if I go as Paul, God, so what is, what is God telling Paul? He's saying, Paul, I have people out there. And I'm sending you to go get them for me. That's what he's saying. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. There are people whom Paul, when Paul would go and preach the gospel, they would believe. Now some people, some people get all, all bent out of shape about this. Look, how do you know if you're elect? You believe in Jesus. That's how you know. Did Paul know who was the elect? No. He had no idea. Is there a way to find out? Yes, there is. Paul goes and preaches the gospel. If you believe in Jesus, you're elect. Because those, those who come to me, all the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. And those who come to me, I will by no means cast out. We preach the gospel. Look, our job, Paul's job, Paul, Paul is an instrument of God to bring in the eternal purposes of God, the saving purposes of God, by preaching the gospel so that as he preaches, not all will believe, but some will. And we, we can pick up Paul's mantle and become instruments of God of his eternal saving purposes, just like Paul did by doing what? By preaching the gospel. And guess what? Some people aren't going to believe. Some people think you're crazy. Some people think you're, you're just wrong and hateful and bigoted. But guess what? Guess what? Some people will believe. And in that moment, your very words of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in that very moment, God is reaching out through your own words and taking hold of one of His people and bringing them in. When you preach the gospel. When you preach the gospel. That's how it works. Charles Spurgeon said salvation is like walking through a door. And on the front it says, whosoever will. And then you walk through the door and you look behind you and over the door it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. But what did Paul, what is Paul? Paul's a doorman. So am I and so are you. Here's the door. We got, you got to go out there and tell people, hey, here's the door. That's why I don't play instruments, you know. Here's the door, okay? We're doormen, we're doormen, right? When we share Christ with others, we become God's instruments to manifest His Word, to bring to bear the ancient promise of eternal life to God's people. And the final thing I want us to see this morning is, here, Paul says, Paul a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, right? How are they going to know the truth unless somebody tells them, right? How are we going to know the truth unless somebody tells them? We got to tell them, right? Look, a lot of people are saying a lot of things right now. You turn on the news, you turn on your smartphone, turn on your your computer. A lot of people are telling a lot of things. But how many people are telling the truth? We got to tell people the truth, for the sake of the knowledge of the truth and the faith of God's elect. And then he, he has this little phrase, and, and with this we'll wrap it up. He says, which accords with godliness. So what we're going to see this theme throughout the book of Titus, because this is important to Paul in the life of the Cretan church, is that if you are chosen by God, if you have the knowledge of the truth, if you have heard the gospel and repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay, if those are true with you, There is a a faith, a knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. What does it mean? It means means that the gospel both demands and creates godliness. If God has saved you, then by definition you must be becoming a godly person. The gospel demands and creates godliness. There is a godliness that accords with the truth. Those who've been chosen by God, heard the preaching of God, believed in the gospel of God, received the spirit of God, have come under the eternal purposes of God, must then walk in the holiness of God. How will the world know that Jesus makes a difference if we look just like the world? And through the book of Titus, that's what we're going to see. The gospel changes us. It changed me. It's still changing me. It's changing you. Guess what? It can change them. If we give it to them. So what is Paul saying? Hey, Titus, tell the Cretan church. They're part of something bigger Than they've ever dreamed. The eternal saving purposes of God have drawn near to them. And they must be changed. And we must too. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come under the saving purposes and promises of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made a way when there was no way. Thank you, Lord, that when we were lost and dead in our sins and trespasses, you reached out and saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us, like the Apostle Paul, to be instruments God, of your saving grace, to be preachers of the good news of Jesus Christ, knowing that as we do that, Lord, we are participating in an ancient promise, that we become your very own hands and feet to bring to bear your saving power, God, to those who will know you. And Lord, I pray Lord, that maybe perhaps someone listening to the sound of my voice right now, deep in their hearts, they don't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them this very moment to behold you with eyes of faith, Lord Jesus, as the one who lived, who died, who rose again, and who's coming back one day. And I pray that they would just reach out to you in their hearts in repentance, turning away from their sins, and trusting in you. And I pray at this moment you would fill them with your spirit and bring them into the forever family of God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.